podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Have you been listening? Do you know what sport we're actually playing? Whoa, 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 whoa. I was number nine. Don't be pointing me down at number 11. Back in the day, I defeated Dwayne The Rock Johnson twice. The Paralympics almost has more power than the Olympics ever will be. Not really a fun kind of guy. Doesn't really like people. Come on then, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic teenagers who interview some of the biggest names within the world of sport. From world champions, World Cup winners, international athletes, Ryder Cup golfers, Ashes heroes and many other sportsmen and women, we delve deep into their sporting career, the highs and the lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. But that's enough for me, I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, Tom and Avatar, who host the podcast, and I'll let them introduce today's guest. See you later. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set up this podcast to provide our pupils with fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Join us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is an England cricketing great. He played over 180 times for England, scoring over 8,000 international runs. He is considered as one of England's greatest captains and is now a Sky Sports commentator. Welcome to the podcast, Nasser Hussain. Morning, lads, or good afternoon. I'm in Dubai in isolation for six days before the World T20, so an absolute pleasure to join you both. We'd like... To start our podcast up with some quick-fire questions, are you ready? I am. I'll give, try and give you quick answers. Favourite place to go on holiday? Uh, Barbados, best place. Great beaches, great food, great people. Favourite food? Curry. Uh, born in India, Chennai, so love my curry. Love uh, A chicken biryani would be my favourite food at the moment. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Who's the most famous person in my phone book? Uh, probably Joe Root, I would say. Although we don't speak that much, but the England captain, Joe Root. If you could trade lies with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Uh, well, it would have been a while ago, but I would say probably a golfer when he was alive, I would say Sevi Ballesteros. He was my childhood hero growing up, watching Sevi. Playing like, if, if I was Seve in a Ryder Cup day, that would have been my absolute dream to do, the way he just won games of golf from nowhere. You were born in India in 1968 and then moved to England seven years later. Do you have any early memories of growing up in India? A few. Yeah, I only left when I was, what, six or seven. So I have a few. I, I remember like a monitor badge I had at my school in India. I remember the house we stayed in. I remember the cricket ground the Chepok Stadium in Chennai where myself and my brothers used to just mess around in the evening and play games of cricket when my dad was either inside at the bar or outside playing cricket. So the cricket ground in my house, but I was obviously quite young when I left. Um, you attended att- You attended Forest School in London. What were you like at school? Um, I was okay at school. I wasn't particularly bright. My one good subject was subject was mathematics. For some reason, I got on okay with maths. I just bluffed like I did with cricket in my captaincy. 
I just sort of <laughs> bluffed my way through the rest of it. But maths, I was okay at. I ended up sort of doing my O-levels a year early in maths. Um, but I, I enjoyed maths, but, you know, played a lot of cricket, a lot of football, hockey at Forest School. Uh, really enjoyed going to Forest School. You were very successful at schoolboy level. What are your memories of playing cricket as a teenager? I was a, a more of a bowler then. Tom, I was a, a leg spin bowler. Um, myself and Michael Atherton opened the bowling for England schoolboys under 15s, both as leg spinners. And then I completely got the yips. I completely did not know. I shot up in height. I grew like a foot from age 15. And the whole trajectory of bowling was completely lost on me. And I was at the Ilford Cricket School, which my dad ran. Um, and it was going in the side net, double bouncers, beamers. You know, it was just ridiculous. So... I took up my batting a bit more seriously and eventually my batting came through and I, I got a contract with Essex as a batsman. But, you know, it was a, a, a good... I, I, most of my time was either at Forest School or down the cricket school in Ilford playing cricket. You make your Celtic debut. debut in 1987. What was that like? Well so you made your Essex debut in 1987. What was that like? Um, it was surreal, really. I mean, I... Growing up, my heroes were that um, Essex side. I was, you know, lived in near Valentine's Park, Ilford, and every time Essex played there, I would probably sneak through a gap in the fence and go and watch Essex play and watch the likes of Graham Gooch and Alan Border and Keith Fletcher and John Lever and Stuart Turner, Pringle Foster, those sort of guys, all my heroes growing up. And then all of a sudden, you wouldn't believe it, lads, but suddenly you're in a dressing room and there are your heroes, Gooch and, you know, Fletcher and Border and all these sort of guys. So it was a little bit surreal, but they were great to me, in particular, Derek Pringle. Um, I changed next to Derek Pringle and he sort of took me under his wing a little bit. Um, he was constantly rowing with Neil Foster uh, and they, I changed right between the two of them. Um, and it was great fun, actually, but it was a brilliant dressing room. So different from what it is now. It used to be so sort of, um, you know, it wasn't as professional as it is now. They used to row with each other every single moment. But the moment they got on the field, Essex were a real team. They were a really united team under Keith Fletcher. I just wanted to give a shout out to the Daily American podcast. This is another great podcast where Dan interviews people from around the world who have very interesting stories of struggle in life, overcoming challenges and battling through tough times. So please go and check out the Daily American podcast. You made your England debut in 1990 against the West Indies. What are your memories of that? Similar to what I've just said, actually, um, again, incredibly surreal experience. I had been at Durham University. I was basically studying cricket and geochemistry or something at Durham University. And so I was playing like Leeds Uni and, um, you know, other Cambridge Uni. And then suddenly I'm at Sabina Park, West Indies, playing for England. And I'm at Short Leg and Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes. And then Viv Richards come, the great Viv Richards, <laughs> arguably the greatest batsman of all time with his cap on, swagger and strut. And, you know, you're like thinking, I, I, I was watching this six months ago or a year ago, you know, Patrick Patterson at the end of his run, my first ball in test match cricket, first time I'd been on telly, you know, like you think, you always think you bat like David Gower or, you know, who's a right-hander I thought I batted, like Mark War or something. 
and you suddenly realise your batting's ugly and you have to try and work out how to get runs <laughs> against the fastest bowling attack there's ever been. So um, it was brilliant tour. We should have, we could have won that series, but Graham Gooch got injured. He got his hand broken by Ezra Mosley in the third test, fourth test. And then we ended up uh, losing our iconic captain and our leader, and um, we lost after that. You then didn't play for England for three years, and we read that you were a bit of a troublemaker. Is that true? <laughs> I was a bit, I wouldn't say a troublemaker, but I was a bit sort of spoke my mind. I didn't know when to um, shut up. So, you know, on the odd occasion when I didn't think at the Essex side, was doing the right thing. You know, there was a time where we weren't bowling particularly well at the end of a white ball innings. I would speak up and, you know, I was like, why why can't we bowl Yorkers like they bowl Yorkers? And then there was a row in the dressing group. And then Graham Gooch came around to my house and say, you're banned for a game. You can't speak to our bowlers like that. Then I had a fight with Mark War in the dressing room at Tunbridge or something. We, we disagreed or I kicked my case across his foot and hurt his foot and it was <laughs> it was small stuff but it was it was just a bit of fire in my belly I didn't like a side underperforming you know I didn't like a side you know playing you you guys play sport when you do it you do it to the best of your ability and then at the end if you lose I didn't mind but you know I used to speak my mind maybe a bit too much and I had to work out when to talk and when not to talk you became captain in 1999 what sort of captain were you and what was it like to get the chance to be captain of England? Um, unbelievable, really. I mean, you know, you go back to your original questions, born in Chennai, Indian dad. Can you imagine the when I ring him up, David Graveney, the chairman of selectors, has just rung me and said, would you like to be captain of England? You know, for me, all I ever did was like Essex under 11s, Essex under 12s, Essex under 15s, England under 15s. Essex second 11, Essex, you're just trying to get into the next side. Um, and then all of a sudden you're playing for England and then someone rings you up and says, will you captain England? And, you know, my dad sort of broke down in tears when I said I was going to be the next England captain. Uh, and then sort of reality dawned that actually it's a great job, but it's also a very difficult job. We were officially the worst side in test match cricket. When you think of all we have in England with the passion for cricket, the 18 first class counties, we weren't the best side in the world, but we shouldn't have been the worst side in the world. So myself and Duncan Fletcher, who was also named as coach at that time, we took it on board to try and improve and just try and get us up the table. We were never, you know, we were never in the class of Australia with the, with the side they had. But I looked at a side like New Zealand that um, also didn't have the massive household names, but had some very good cricketers, but every year managed to get more out of the team than we were. So I looked at Stephen Fleming as a captain. He was a brilliant leader. And we just tried to improve gradually. And it was a long process. And there were still defeats to Australia and still some very bad days. But um, slowly we started to improve. The 90s and early 2000s was a period of dominance for Australia. What are your memories of the Ashes during your career? Tom, we were getting on so well until that question. <laughs> um, yeah, listen, it, it was, they were, you know, with the West Indies side of, what, the 80s and 90s and before that, actually, um, you know, they would be the two greatest side. The Australian side I played against with 
Slater, Taylor, War, War, Gilchrist or Healy, Warren, McGrath, Lee, Gillespie, you know, their bowling attack and their batters, you know, Gilchrist coming in at seven and after all their batting lineup that they had, uh, the way they caught, the way they were led by either Border or Steve War or Taylor, whoever you want to name, they were great captains. They were an awesome side. And I wouldn't, people say now, would you like to play now against Australia? No way. I was so lucky to play against that Australian side. I can tell you there was no bigger thrill than batting against someone like Shane Warne. You know, the, the blonde locks, the zinc on his face, the flared trousers, the sledging, the abuse he used to give you when you arrived at the crease. Um, you know, it was just with a massive crowd and the whole of the Barmy Army chanting Shane Warne songs. And, you know, yeah, we lost to him a lot. Um you know, we lost a lot away from home. I think I lost the Ashes in 11 days against them, lads. We were, you know, and Ashes is supposed to go on 25 days. I managed to lose it as a captain in 11 days. So there were some real dark uh, moments. But as I say, I was absolutely thrilled to play against that Australian side. They were an awesome side. Who was the best bowler you ever faced and why? Well, I've half answered it there after um, Shane Warne. Shane Warne was just, for me, and this is a massive statement, Shane Warne is the greatest bowler that's ever played the game. Now, Murley, um, the great Sri Lankan off-spinner, might debate that, but for me, Shane was the greatest to play the game. He was just, you know, reinvented leg spin bowling. It was a dying art before Warne. The ball he bowled to Gatting at Old Trafford, the ball of the century, were Gatting just even walking off could not work out how that ball had got past his defences. Uh, and that was the thing when you played against Shane, you just could not work out how the certain deliveries he bowled. Uh, the one I really struggled with, the one that I just could not work out was Courtney Walsh. He was all sort of arms and legs and he would lean away and the ball would look like it was coming into me. And I would think, right, it's coming in, but you know it's going to leave you at the last second. And even though you knew it was going to leave you, you would still follow the ball and edge it through to the slip cordon or the keeper. And he always used to look at me and shake his head and go, how have you ever played for England? I get you out. You're my bunny every single time. I get you out every single time. So I really struggled with Courtney Walsh and the sort of angles he created as a bowler. You had a difficult decision to make in the 2003 World Cup regarding a match against Zimbabwe. What can you tell us? Can you tell us what happened, please? Yeah, Tom, it was a difficult one. I mean, you know, the way that the, the country was going with Zimbabwe, I'd watched various bits of footage and documentaries. There was a good one on Channel 4. I'd spoken to Michael Atherton, a close friend of mine, who just said, look, be careful. We were in the ashes in Australia just before. Be careful. This is going to rear its its head in, in the World Cup. And it did. And, you know, I just did not on, you know... <laughs> I just didn't feel it was right to go and play a game of cricket as an England player. It was different for other countries. It was a unique situation for England with Zimbabwe. And I just didn't think the political situation and what was happening in Zimbabwe at the time was the right time to go and play a World Cup game. And we then got death threats from, uh, uh, you know, from sons and daughters of Zimbabwe. If you ever step foot in Zimbabwe and that, Obviously, the players then got very worried about themselves and their families. And then it would, you know, became a very difficult decision. Um, you know, I spoke to Henry Alonga and Andy Flower, who made that gesture, that great gesture when they played 
They put black armbands on their sleeves. You know, the death of um, cricket and the death of the, the country in Zimbabwe, they wore um, black armbands. And it was a great gesture. We thought about that, whether we should go down that road. But who were we to go into someone else's country and start making political statements? So it was a difficult time. I probably didn't feel I got the support from either the, well, definitely not from the ICC at the time and probably not from the ECB. Um, in the end, we fudged it. We went and said we didn't go because of um, safety reasons, um, security reasons, when actually I never really wanted to go um, because I didn't want to be viewed historically as a captain that led his side to Zimbabwe. It was a difficult time, but lads, you've got to realise when you're captain of your country, these difficult decisions come up. You know, it's a, it's a great job, but it's also a job. You're an ambassador for your country. And sometimes it's not just about the game. It's about off-field stuff as well. And this was one of those occasions. During your time as Captain Nasser, was that the most difficult decision, would you say? Or was it when it was more difficult? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Because obviously it's not um, you know, a cricketing decision with you know, the Brisbane toss or whatever, or field settings or picking, and, uh, you know, picking players. I'd say the most difficult thing is obviously leaving out a player. And leaving out a player when you know you're probably not going to pick them again. So people who had done very well for you and carried you and, you know, sometimes saved your job when you're having to tap them on the shoulder and say, look, we're going in a different direction. That was difficult. But cricketing de decisions are just gut feel and you go with your gut feel. And if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. But when it comes to a political decision like Zimbabwe, um, then you're not, you know, <laughs> I'm a boy who was brought up in Chennai and played cricket at the Ilford Cricket School. And here I am being offered meetings with Nelson Mandela. And, you know, it was way above my head, but I just had a gut feel I needed to do the right thing at that time. So it was a difficult decision. But as I say, you are the England cricket captaincy is an odd one. It's a, it's a cricketing job, but you're an ambassador for your country as well. You stopped being captain of both the test side and one day in 2003 why did you make that decision I was done Tom mentally I'd done the job four and a half years you know in those days we lost more games than we won um you know I lived and breathed sort of being captain it was the best job in the world and I threw every single hour day into becoming trying to become a better captain and making us a better team and by the end, whether it be the Zimbabwe thing and losing another World Cup, losing another Ashes, um, I turned up to Edge Baston. Michael Vaughan had taken over the white ball side and you could just see that spark and energy in that side, a younger side, no fear of failure. They didn't need me shouting at them anymore like I had done for four years. If, if anything, they needed someone to say, right, you've, you've changed the culture now go out and express himself, express yourselves. And that's what Vaughan did. Vaughan was described what as a iron fist in a velvet glove. And the way he handled them, the way he let them go out and express themselves against Australia in 2005, when they won that magnificent Ashes series, they couldn't have done that with me in charge. It was too much mental baggage and scarring. They needed Vaughan to take them on. So I think it was the right decision for me and definitely the right decision for the team. You had a terrible record of losing the toss as captain. Cheers, 
<laughs> Maybe that was a reason you stopped being captain. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to give that as an excuse to you, mate. But um, it was unbelievable. I don't know if you've got the stats. Benedict often tells me the stats, but I lost like 15 in a row or something. I don't know what it is. I mean, <laughs> recently, Virat Kohli nearly went past it um, or has gone past it. I mean, you imagine tossing and coin in your room now and losing 15 in a row or whatever it could be. So... I'd love to. And when I won the toss in Brisbane, I did the wrong thing and got Australia <laughs> in and they got 400 for two. So, um, yeah, myself and, and tossing a coin wasn't a, wasn't a great thing, to be honest. So thanks for bringing that up, mate. <laughs> you must have seen lots of pranks and jokes during your time as an England player. Who was the best at playing pranks and what was the best prank? Um, some backfired. I think once I wasn't in the dressing room, but I think Robert Croft once cut the socks in Duncan Fletcher, Glamorgan. They were at Glamorgan together and he cut socks of Duncan holes in Duncan Fletcher's socks. So at the end of the day, when Fletcher went to put his sock on, his foot went straight through and he sort of brought his sock up towards his shins or whatever, which didn't go down well, too well with Duncan at the time. Um, we didn't have too many. I mean, the, the great characters in our dressing room were like Goff and Tufnell. You know, Goff, I think once at Hobart when uh, when we were, he turned up as Santa. He turned up with a load of presents and stuff. And it didn't go down too well with our bowling attack because Australia A had smashed us for like 400 for three in, in a day or whatever. So Goff was a great character. Tufnell was a great character. He was just so old school. He just... He just knew how to bowl left arm spin, nothing else. He wasn't interested in fielding, batting, uh, training. You know, once Graham Gooch said to him in the nets, come on, come on, Tuffers, we're going for a three-mile run. And Tuffers just turned to him and said, if you, can hit, if you can find a batter that hits the ball three miles, then I'll come on a run with you. But until then, I'm going back to my room um, for a cup of tea and a biscuit. So um, we had some good characters back then, um, Tufnell and Goff, I would say. We're right at the top of the list. Uh, your friend David Lloyd was a England coach. Then you you were uh, captain. captain. What was like as a coach? Uh, he was like he is now. He's a little bit up and down, a little bit eccentric, but a great loyal man. I mean, just as a coach, we would be absolutely rubbish, and he would absolutely tear a piece off us in the dressing room or even the lift. I remember we lost. In Melbourne, my fault, I ran past Shane Warne, having been sledged by him, he got me out. And I remember going up in the lift at one of the hotels in, in Melbourne, and we were all there together. Uh, and Bumble just said, get rid of this lot, they're rubbish. Get, get all the Lancashire team in, Hussein, you're rubbish. And the next day, he goes out in the press, and he builds us up as the greatest side ever. You know, you know, my boys are perfect, my boys are good. He was so loyal to us, Bumble. Um, and if I... I he is one of my most favourite people, I have to be honest, Bumble. What you see about David Lloyd on the telly now, and I don't know if, I think you've had him on this, on this podcast, but what you see with Bumble is exactly what you get. Sometimes you see people on camera and they play up and they're completely different. Bumble is a generous, humorous, funniest man on the planet um, and very, very down to earth. And that's how he was as our coach. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. 
our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance. And we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. Um, I just want to come and ask a quick question, Last. So going back to your England captaincy and looking at other sports, so take football, for example. From a fan's point of view, it would be Gareth Southgate who picks the team, is in charge of the team. Rugby is the coach. Cricket, it seems more, it's you, it's Michael Vaughan, it's Joe Root. Is, it, is the captain more involved in the picking of the team rather than the manager, or is it both together? How does it work? Uh, in, in our day, it was, definitely. We used to be really you know, involved. We had a, a selector, Jeff Miller, who used to turn to us and say, look, these are the people we select and we think you could have. Because when you're playing for England all year round, you may not see you know, when Michael Vaughan burst on the side or Marcus Truscothic or Simon Jones or Andrew Flintoff, uh, all these people who are household names now. But because we were playing international cricket, we wouldn't see some of these lads coming through. So the selectors would um, give you maybe a bit of footage or give you the stats of these players, but then turn to you and say, we are not forcing you to take anyone on the field that you don't want. A captain must have 11 people, 10 and himself, on that field that he wants. So it became more difficult the more I played international cricket and the more I captained because you you were away from county cricket so much. The names coming through, you hadn't played against that much. So it's, a, it's a good question. It's, a, it's an unusual thing in football, other sports. I would say the manager, the coach are the most important people and the captain, you watch the footballers and the captains wear the armbands and they will tinker with the tactics and maybe change a few things and be, you know, the role models within that side and show some character. I would say in cricket, the captain, or it should be, the captain is the number one person. He or she is the person that sets the tactics, changes the tactics, picks the team, um, goes on gut feel. Um, so I think it's a much more important role in cricket. And that's why you can see the, the changes. So look at Owen Morgan and what he's done to our white ball side. Before Morgan, we were the laughing stock of white ball cricket. Morgan comes in and we ended up winning a World Cup. And we've got a very good chance in this World Cup coming up. As soon as you retired, you became a commentator for Sky Sports. How did that come about and do you enjoy it? Uh, I literally retired last day at Lords. Tom, I got a, lucky enough to get 100 against New Zealand. We won the game. I turned to Duncan Fletcher the night before and said, look, I think I'm retiring tomorrow, hoping that my ex-coach would say, no, no, NASA, stay, we need you. He just turned to me and said, yeah, I think you're retiring tomorrow as well. You're done. Thanks, coach. So luckily enough, the next day I went out and got 100 against New Zealand. We won, and it was just sat having a glass of champagne with Fletcher and Thorpe and Vaughan and all those guys on the balcony. It was just too good a moment to pass up. Um, and then the next day, the phone rang. It might have even been that evening. A person called Barney Francis, who was the head of um, Sky Cricket, and he just said, look, we'd like you to come to Sky and I don't know if you want to carry on playing or not, uh, but if you're retiring completely from the game, we'd like to offer you a job in the cricket department. And I'd, you know, I'd seen Bumble and how good he was and Athers. Uh, Mike Atherton was such a close friend. Uh, David Gow was a hero of mine growing up. Surrey and Botham, or Ian Botham then, England's greatest ever cricketer. Michael Holding, one of the great men in, in world cricket on and off the field. 
it was just too good an opportunity to pass up, really. I was done with cricket. I could do like Cook, Alistair Cook does now. He plays for Essex. But, you know, once you're done, you, you should move on and leave it to the next generation, really. And when a job's there of the, of the magnitude of sky cricket, um, I don't think you turn that down, personally. Uh, what is your favourite thing about commentating? Uh, good question, After I would say being in part of a team. I'd say before, the hardest thing when you'd retire from cricket, professional cricket or professional sport, you go from day in, day out. You probably, well, you do. You spend more time with your team than you do with your family. And then suddenly that team is not there. So I still feel part of a team, whether it be the directors, the producers, the on-screen talent, as they call it. I hate that word. The on-screen, you know, how can you call Bumble talent? You know? <laughs> uh, Bumble, me, Ath, Shane, Warren, you know, before that, Botham and Gower, Michael Holding, you know, um, we had Isha at our last couple of years ago. We've had Ebony since then. Um, you know, I've forgotten more. Rob Key, I mean, what a dream to work with the legendary Rob Key. Get him on your podcast, please. Um, <laughs> so um, it's a great team. Some of the producers and directors and some of the guys and girls down in the truck, we come up with these third men ideas, you know, those tactics and all analysis. And actually, that most of the time, it's someone in the truck pressing a button going, do you know what? Have you seen this, Nass? And then you use it and you never mention the guys in the trucks at all. You just make out that you came out with that idea. So um, they're a great team to work for. The Henshaws Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45-plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance, and we offer a free, no-obligation, consultations and quotations, so give us a call today. We spoke to Bumble a few weeks ago, and we asked him some quick-fire questions about his Sky Sports colleagues. <laughs> can you ask... The- can you can we ask you the same questions, please? Right. Was he rude about me, Tom, or not? Uh, not from what I remember. No. Who would you take on a night out? Who would I take on a night out? Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, not Shane Warne. Um, I would take uh, David Lloyd. He, David Lloyd, but it would be a dull night out. It would be a curry and a dodgy beer. I went out with him once in Lancashire. In, sorry, Manchester, and I couldn't even get a, a, a mineral water. The, the bar lady looked at me and said, we don't do water here. Sorry, I know this is a quick fire round. Carry on. Bumble. Um, you are stuck on a desert island for a month. Who do you want with you and why? Uh, not Rob Key. I'd say Michael Atherton. Uh, he's a good mate. He knows right from wrong. He's a bright lad. So if we needed to solve a problem, which I guess... On a desert island, you'd have a lot of problems to solve, I would say, Athers. I mean, it, you know, I might even learn some longer words. A man with a, you know, a dictionary of words that I couldn't even spell, let alone use in a podcast or in a piece. He's just the brightest man on the planet, really. So probably, even though he was harsh on me in the last podcast, I'll say Athers. <laughs> that was the question we asked him. We asked him and he said he would take you. 
There we go. We're in love. The love affair. Atherton and Hussein carries on. And we asked him why, and he said, because you would take yourself the furthest corner away from the island and you wouldn't bother with them. I'm in isolation. I'm in quarantine here, and it hasn't really changed my week, to be honest. (laughs) I I like my own company. Who is the funniest? Bumble. Bumble doesn't think he's funny, but he is. Rob Keith thinks he's funny, but he's not. So, you know, there's just daylight between uh, Lloyd and Key, basically. Who is the most intelligent? Atherton, by an absolute, just miles. Atherton, daylight, holding probably, and then the rest (laughs) of us are right at the bottom of that list. Atherton by a mile, far too bright. You've gotten a fight. Who do you want to back you up? Good question. I would say well, I wouldn't cross Michael Holding in the dressing in in the comp box. Um, I would say probably Mikey. He's also the most stubborn person out there. So I don't know if that's a good thing or not in a fight. But um, Mikey is quite an imposing character, and I, I, we once, you know, when you have a heated debate on air with Mikey, once we had a heated debate in Port Elizabeth about uh, Rabada's celebration in the in the face of Joe Root. And, you know, Mikey, when he has an opinion, he's very, very strong with his opinion. He's a good man, Mikey. Who would be last to get their round of drinks? Me. (laughs) (laughs) Me, as everyone. That's just a lie. It's only because I don't carry cash, really. So, although I could use contactless, I guess, nowadays, trying to work out an excuse here. (laughs) Me, Tom. Who would you... Who would you who would make the best James Bond? Who would make the best James Bond? Warney, I guess, Shane. Shane has got all his gear and yeah, Shane. I didn't know this about Shane. I only found this out in the hundred. Shane is absolute people who go around his house and everything. Now I now see it in the commentary box in the green room, as we call it, the area we go when we're not commentating. He is absolutely spotless and meticulous. If you like, leave a cup of coffee or something. Just sitting around, Shane will tidy it up before you even you've even moved. And people say you go around his house and is absolutely spotless. So um, Shane would be that sort of well-dressed, smart sort of James Bond. Yeah. There are four different types of cricket: Test match, One Day, Twenty Twenty, and the Hundred. Which of them is your favourite, and why? Test match cricket, um, simply because it just lives so long in your memory and you know once you've played it how difficult a week it is. And it is a week. You turn up two days before and you prep and you train and it is you can get a naught on the first morning. So you're on a pair for like three days and then you see Australia or South Africa or someone going smashing, you know, in the back of your mind, you've got to go out second time round. It's just such a mentally, for bowler physically, for a batter and a captain, mentally draining week it really is but it gives you the great greatest of pleasures you know if I look back on my career I can most of my highlights and lowlights revolve around test match I always describe it as your main course and your puddings are your you know your 2020 and your 100 and they're great fun and you enjoy it and you love it but don't have too much pudding your main course should still be test match cricket absolutely love test match cricket what are you ashes Predicted. So, what are your ashes, ashes predictions? I would say, well, 
After, unfortunately, history is a fairly good indicator of the future. Um, the last 10 test matches in Australia, England have lost nine uh, and drawn the other. Um, but I would say that this Australia side are a little bit more vulnerable. Um, they have a captain who's vulnerable, a coach. There's been a lot of talk about Justin Langer and the pressure on him. Um, their bowling attack is is very, very good. And, you know, batting, they have Labuschagne and... And Steve Smith, um, you know, they could do uh, with Warner finding some form. But um, you'd say Australia are favourites. But if someone can help Joe Root get some runs, if it can't just be Root with the batting, Milan or Pope or whoever they pick, they need to get more runs than just Joe Root. They're a little bit too reliant. I like the three they picked at the end of the summer in Burns, Hamid and Milan. But, you know, in Australia, they will be tested. So history tells you Australia, but, um, you know, I wish I wish the lads well. They're going. Uh, it's a great series, the Ashes. We've got a few questions, Nas, from a few um, listeners who've got in touch with us. So I just want to ask, ask two questions from, from our listeners. The first one is, do you think England's unwillingness to hand Parkinson a test cap is justified or is it more to do with the fact that England has a tendency to select bowlers, keeping an eye on their batting ability? Yeah, I think the last part, I think with the absence of Ben Stokes and who knows when Ben, you know, it's been some good signs. He sent out some tweets of him holding a bat and hitting some balls in the net. So fingers crossed that Ben Stokes returns and maybe, hopefully, you never know when he's ready, the end of the ashes or whatever. But without Ben Stokes, that balance of that side is a nightmare. They can't get in two spinners, they may even not be able to get in one spinner without really weakening their batting. So it's the balance of the side in absence of Stokes that's done some of these spinners no favours at all. So Parkinson, when we've seen him this summer, has bowled beautifully. Now, make no mistake, he's no Shane Warne yet, even though Shane said pick him earlier in the summer. Um, But the problem, what they need is, Moen Ali's gone, retired, a bowler who can bat. Um, in Leach, they have a bowler who can bat a bit. He got Test 90, didn't he? A night watchman at Lords. But if they, you know, what had best in his favour was the fact that he bats a bit and he's an all-round cricketer. And Parkinson just bowls. So I think it's the latter that's working against Parkinson. But he's on the Lions squad, and you know, with Crane, the other leg spinner, and hopefully they'll both progress nicely. So last question, last question from a listener. So around the world. Countries use different types of cricket balls. The question is, do you think a single manufactured ball should be used in test cricket across the world? And if so, which one? Yeah, another good question. It's come up. Sean Pollock is quite strong on this and he doesn't think so because of the the way that, like, if you use maybe a Kookaburra ball in England with the rain and the wet and the dew and the soft, how it would affect that. Um, And even the Duke's ball abroad, it's just the ball is dependent on the country and the conditions it's a massive discrepancy. You know, it, it is a massive. I cannot tell you how much the game is different with a Duke's ball to a Kookaburra ball. A Duke's ball in England, are, as we saw against India, after 70 overs, it is still hard and shiny on one side and swinging round corners and doing a lot. In the Kookaburra ball, after 70 overs, it literally looks like your dog's been at it for a year. It is <laughs> soft, no seam. It is like playing, you know, bowling a, um, an orange or something. It just dies. It's, um, and it just affects the, the, the game. It, it, it would do. You look at um, batting in Australia compared to England. So the problem is, is the conditions. 
I wouldn't mind a season. You speak to first-class cricketers and they are fed up, the batters, with uh, the pitches and the amount the ball is doing. I wouldn't mind a trial of a season maybe in April and May to use the Kookaburra and September when they still play now to maybe go and use the Kookaburra ball because I do think it's doing too much in domestic cricket at the moment. If you could have dinner with three people, who would they be and why? Dinner with three people. Um, well, I've mentioned one now in Seve, my you know great great golfer growing up. We used to love watching him. Um, this question always always does me to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't do dinner with anyone else ever. Um, I don't know. I'm watching Succession out here. Who's the lead carrier character in Succession? I the main man in that, the old eighty year old guy or whatever. I wouldn't mind having sitting down and having dinner um, with him. And I would say I'd have to go, um, I don't know, the great Don Bradman or someone like that. You know, if, when he was alive, everyone spoke about Don Bradman and he's this sort of mythical, mystical character that averaged 99 in Test match cricket. And uh, you hear sort of, you know, things about him. What was he really like, the great Don Bradman? I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, NASA. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. No problems, lads. Keep up the good work. Eh? Your podcasts are excellent. Thank you. So, boys, another podcast just finished with Nasser Hussein. Tom, I'll start with you. How do you feel that podcast went? I think it went really well, and I enjoyed I enjoyed his enthusiasm and what he had to explain about the the past, the present, and the future of his career. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. After, what did you like most about the podcast? Um, I like it. I like him to talk. his like uh, funny jokes about his um, someone um, his cricket player, and then um, then um, he's talking about um, his um, someone pranking his um, his um, his um, socks prank in his butter perhaps. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. You quite like the pranks, don't you? After yeah, that. I love pranking. Yeah, quite. Are you a bit of a prankster? Uh, not really, though, no more. I just retired soon. You retired? Yeah. You retired from that, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sala Rugby, they've recently joined and supported the podcast, and we just wanted to say a big thank you to Sala Rugby. And it's a fantastic rugby team based in France, and they're quite a new, not a new rugby team, but quite a small rugby team that are doing lots to build and build their club and their community up to, to reach as high as they possibly can. And they've got off to a great start of the season. They're top of the league. They've won every game so far this season and they're doing lots of really, really good things. So follow them on social media. They play all their games live on their social medias. Um, I think it's on their YouTube channel. So just search Sarla Rugby, S-A-R-L-A-T and have a look. Give them a watch. They're a really, really good team. We've got some of their rugby players and their president on the podcast as well. So yeah, they're a fantastic team and please go and check them out. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. 
This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network.